If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 703. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast, find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that, but get that free class. And then also purchase a class or 20. You keep this podcast free of charge, and you get great content. It's a win-win. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way. You can also do that by clicking on the super thanks button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. That's a great way to support the show financially. Or you can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. All those ways are great ways to support the show financially. You can also support it by rate reviewing and subscribing to the podcast. Give it that five-star review. Let people know you like it. Comment on it. That's a great way to get people interested in the show, ears on the show, eyeballs on the show. And also send me those show requests if you want to hear something. I want to know what you want to hear. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic of the day. And it was this is a listener-generated episode because a listener sent this, of course, he also wrote the piece, but um, he said, I, I talked about Yoram Mazzoni in his conservatism book, uh, reviewed that. But he said, look, I wrote this uh, for Law and Liberty, and uh, maybe you'd enjoy it. And I did. And it actually ties into this week because we're talking about emotivism. We're talking about emotional responses to things. And emotivism at its core is a response, an emotional response to moral questions, right? There's a, there's a moral question here. It's not a logical thing. It's a moral response. And presentism, in fact, is a twin sister or twin brother, or whatever you want to say, of emotivism, right? So presentism is an emotional way of looking at the past. It's based on preconceived modern notions of moral questions and applying them to the past because these make you feel better. And the right is just as guilty of this as the left, particularly the modern Straussians, the West Coast Straussians, the neoconservatives. And even if you might argue, and, and Jesse Merriam does in this piece, the new right, right? So uh, I, I want to get into this because he, he talks about Hazoni and also Adrian Vermeule, who is uh, also a big intellectual figure now in the right. And this is a review of both of their work. And it's the title is Much to Spew About Nothing. Much to Spew About Nothing. And it gets into this position where you know, their major attack on emotivism or these other things, is, or I should say originalism, is false. I mean, they just, it's, it's, a, it's leading you down the wrong path. And so I want to read this because it's really good, and I think you're going to get something out of it too. So he says, the 2016 populist uprising against establishment conservatism generated an important shift in scholarly discourse on the conservative movement, a shift from whether the movement is succeeding to why it has failed. Now, that is an important point to make. The left seems to be winning all the time. So we're not talking about whether we're succeeding, but why we're failing. 
And so what is the root cause of that? Why are conservatives not being successful? This is the same question that Harry Jaffa essentially was asking in the 1970s when he postulated that equality is conservative. And I'll talk about equality um, coming up. I've got an article I want to go through with that too. But you see, Jaffa believed that conservatives were failing because the left had monopolized this term equality and weaponized it and used it to their advantage, really since Lincoln. But he didn't think that was leftist. He thought that was actually conservative, that Lincoln was a conservative. And so therefore, American equality is conservative. The Lincolnian view of America was conservative, not leftist. And essentially, the idea was to take race off the table because of the emotional response to that particular issue. It's not logical. Attacking Confederate monuments, for example, or Confederate symbols is not logical. It's emotional. It's emotivism on display on a regular basis. That monument, the symbols, had nothing to do with anything. Right? It's, they had nothing to do with anything that we've talked about in the last, say, decade. But because there is a powerful emotional response for some people, not a logical response, but an emotional response, it merits the discussion of taking these things down, which really solves nothing. I mean, has crime gotten any better? Well, no. Have policies gotten any better? Well, no. Has government gotten any better? No. Has anything, has the economy gotten any better? No. But we took down those monuments, you see. This is the emotional response. It means nothing. And so this is what Jaffa was trying to do. Well, we, we, we solved this emotional problem, and now we start talking about things logically. It becomes rational. All our discussions are rational. What they're missing is that at its core, in reality, uh, modern leftism can never really be rational. It's almost always emotional. And that's a powerful thing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not discounting this, how powerful that is. And what Trump started doing and what the right started doing in 2016 was using that to their advantage, too. They're making emotional arguments. And it's not always a negative emotion. Sometimes it's a positive emotion. Sometimes it's laughing. Sometimes it's picking on the other side and making people laugh. That's an emotional response. Not logical, but emotional. And so Trump's willingness to go on the offensive on Twitter, for example, was funny. right? It's funny. And so people gravitated towards that. It became an emotional response. So discussing why we're failing is a really interesting topic. As a result of this shift, a new scholarly industry has emerged around the following question. Why had the conservative movement, uh, despite its institutional growth and the Republican Party's electoral success, managed to conserve so little of the American way of life? Why is it not conserving anything, really? Well... I think the answer is clearly emotion. Because when you talk about the old way of the American way of life, right? This is a traditional position. Some of that is related to logic. When you start talking about fences, right? This is Chesterton's fence. You have a fence put up. It's there because of things that were done over time that proved the fence was necessary. But the emotional response is, I don't like the fence. The fence is doing something to harm me for whatever reason, at least rhetorically or emotionally. And so the fence has to be taken down. Not understanding the consequences of it. Not really caring about the consequences of it. The fence comes down, so what? 
we'll, we'll deal with the consequences later. And so conservatives fall in this trap too. They don't want to be bad guys. They don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. They don't want to do these things, right? We're dealing with toddlers in a lot of cases. You know, your toddler cries and throws a temper tantrum. Well, okay, you kind of give in and give them the toy. You just want them to stop crying. Well, that's exactly what's happened. You have people that are emotionally responding, like a toddler, to things that they shouldn't really respond to. And the right has just given in. They've taken up the fence. That's what happens. So he says, two scholars in particular, Adrian Vermeule and Yoram Hazoni, have made new careers out of this question. Before the 2016 shift, both men were accomplished thinkers in their respective fields, but neither played a significant role in conservative discourse. Vermeule, a Harvard Law School professor, focused on executive power and administrative law, and Hazoni, president of the Herzl Institute, wrote primarily on Israel and Zionism. Over the last several years, however, Vermeule and Hazoni have become significant and arguably the most significant public intellectuals in the so-called New Right, with Vermeule leading the conservative movement against originalism and Hazoni heading the controversial National Conservatism Conference. Their most recent books, Vermeule's Common Good Constitutionalism and Hazoni's Conservatism, A Rediscovery, published within just a few months of each other, present their most sustained search for a solution to the failures of American conservatism. Now, I've talked about common good constitutionalism on this podcast, and I've talked about conservatism or rediscovery on this podcast, but I thought that this was a nice summary of these two things and why there's a problem with them. And there are, There's a problem with both, particularly when you're talking about conserving anything in American society because it operates from a position, both of them do, that the center, the nation state, the United States, is uh, supreme. Right? And there is a national American culture, which has never been true. They're ignoring all the arguments against centralized power that were issued in the early 19th century, not by leftists, but by conservatives. John Taylor of Caroline was not a leftist. He was a conservative. John Randolph of Roanoke was not a leftist. He was a conservative. John C. Calhoun was not a leftist. He was a conservative. See, there's a problem with these people. And if you don't know what it is, it begins with an S and ends with a Y. Right? So see, it's an emotional response to these individuals. Not a logical response, but an emotional response. We don't live in their America, but yet we can still learn from their positions. Thankfully, we don't live in a period of time where we have slavery. Right? That's gone. But they still had a lot of valuable things to say about American society, what America was, what the founding meant, what American government was, and why it was important to have federalism, which of course is the core of originalism. Anyways. So Merriam says, both books have been reviewed in Law and Liberty Symposia, so I will not be analyzing the books in depth here. Instead, I will be discussing how much these works have in common, both in terms of the problems they diagnose and the solutions they offer. Okay, so that's good. He's not going to focus on the books, but the two men and their solutions and how these are highly troubling or problematic for conservatism. We'll use that term problematic, which is an academic term now. On the surface, Vermeule and Hazoni have almost nothing in common. Vermeule is a recent Catholic convert, rejects any affiliation with political conservatism, and specializes in legal theory and administrative law. Hazoni is an Israeli Orthodox Jew, has been active, an active participant in conservative politics, and is a political philosopher by training. Nevertheless, the recent books offer strikingly similar explanations of what is causing American political and social dysfunction. 
For both author authors, the problem stems from our commitments to individual rights and disaggregated governance and that these uh, commitments work together in preventing us from making national policy on the basis of the common good. So what he's saying here, of course, is individual rights, individual liberty, which of course is a particular strain of American culture, generally coming from the South, and disaggregated governance, which is, of course, decentralization, make it hard to have a common good. That's the problem. The belief in individual rights and decentralized government is a problem. We need more centralization and we need to have less influence. We need to have essentially the Puritan version of America, right? Which is the good of the community over individual or uh, community liberty over individual liberty, right? So, I mean, this is the point. Individual liberty, not so much. Community liberty, yes. It's a Puritan view of America. So they've, they've hooked on, they've latched on to this Puritan view of America, which was another strain of Americanism, right? So it's, you have this New England view of America in contrast to a Southern view of America, if you want to put it in simple terms. And that's essentially what we're looking at here. And to them, Puritan New England is more conservative than the South. In fact, the South wasn't really conservative at all because of slavery, right? This goes back to Jaffa. Jaffa said slavery was not conservative. Equality was conservative. Okay, so it's, but Calhoun stands up and says he's a conservative. The radical Republicans called the Northern Democrats conservatives. So what are we talking about here? You know, you're saying that people weren't conservative, didn't, would never classify themselves as conservative, are now conservatives, and the people that did classify themselves as conservatives are no longer conservative. Because somehow Lincoln's view of America is conservative because it attaches to Jefferson's line we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We, we, we hold to the proposition of this, right? So you skip over that that's somehow conservative and this other stuff isn't, right? So again, the, the thorny issue for, for them is that they have to wrestle with this with position of slavery and what that, in, what that involves, which is an emotional response. So they think they can just do an end around it. And of course, that's going to make everything better. Vermeule focuses on his, his narrative on legal theory and constitutional interpretation, arguing that originalism, generally favored by the legal right, and living constitutionalism, generally favored by the legal left, are actually complementary. According to Vermeule, these two modes of constitutional interpretation share an emancipationist agenda and that they both treat individual rights as beyond communal concerns. Judges and scholars employing these modes therefore view individual rights as liberating the person from the constraints of family, faith, and even his or her own body. By contrast, Vermeule's preferred approach, what he calls common good constitutionalism, conceptualizes rights as arising from within and as part of the community itself. Now, look, this is not odd. I mean, you know, there were people talking about this, like Jeremy Bentham, for example. This is the utilitarian approach. And not just that, I mean, that rights come from state, from the state, from society. Now, you know who else argued that position? 19th century conservatives in a lot of ways. I mean, Jefferson Davis argued this point. A lot of Southerners made this point. Your rights actually come from the community. They were, they were highly critical of the proposition nation, of course. But they did believe that certain rights that you lived with, that you were a political animal in a community, and rights did come from the community. They also did believe, though, in republicanism, and they believed in, uh, in liberty in a hegemonic way, meaning that some people had more than others, but that would also trickle down in society. So that's that cavalier approach 
to liberty that David Hackett Fisher talks about. Okay, so look, there were people that did agree with this in the 19th century. But what's interesting, of course, is that Vermeule uh, would not find that in the South. He, he would he would uh, because he would have an emotional reaction to the South, right? So in some ways, this, you could say, well, this is this is true. I mean, people thought this even in the 19th century, conservatives, but also so did utilitarians. So did leftist utilitarians like Jeremy Bentham. Hazoni tells a slightly different story, pointing the finger at Enlightenment political philosophy. According to Hazoni, the Enlightenment, with its focus on individual liberty, autonomous rationality, and government by consent, is inconsistent with human nature and the purpose of the nation-state. The purpose of a nation, in Hazoni's view, is not the protection of individual rights, as expressed in the Declaration of Independence, but the advancement of honor, loyalty, and cohesion among the nation's various families and tribes. Now again, he's attacking the Enlightenment, which, look, I can agree with. I mean, there are things in both of these men I can agree with in some ways. But where they run into problems is looking for the center to do any of this. The center cannot, in the American system it cannot, because you are going to come into conflict with regional cultures and and uh, a regional approach to society in general. It's going to happen. And you're going to have winners and losers. And so the problem with all of this, of course, is that none of this will be, will be popular. And of course, in our political system, if you can't have popularity in some ways, you're going to lose, right? This won't be popular. Now, you can wave the flag around and call, you know, make America great again, and we're going to have an American nation, all that. Supposedly, that will work. That faux-American nationalism will work to an extent, but I think most people are not on board with that. And the way we're looking at the legal system now, and of course, the Dobbs decision turned everything back to the states, and I think with during COVID, we all started looking at the states. The states still have all the power in this system, and the states still can't protect regional cultures and identities. While Vermeule's and Hazoni's disparate scholarly backgrounds and religious beliefs lead to different narratives, their solutions are ultimately the same. Conservatives must embrace a powerful nation-state and harness this power for the purpose of restoring the traditional family structure, promoting social cohesion through a common national identity, and enforcing a religiously infused moral order. For both Vermeule and Hazoni, the Constitution's preamble, with its broad-purpose pronouncements, uh, provides a blueprint for this national common good conservatism. Again, it's the one people theory. That's what they're going to. One people. We have a nation state, and we're going to work from the top down. And you know who did that? Well, Alexander Hamilton. And John Marshall. This is nothing new, right? This is nothing new at all. What they're talking about is nothing new. It goes back to the 19th century. Merriman says, Vermeule and Hazoni get a lot right. They are particularly astute in observing how a political system driven by abstractions such as equality and liberty will be unable to conserve the particular ways of life necessary to sustain an order. Both men seek a conservatism that is more communally oriented, historically rooted, and empirically grounded. For steering us in this direction, both men should be applauded. And I agree. Right? I just said, I agree. Some of the things we're talking about here, people have said these things before, but the problem is, as Merriam says, they both fail, however, in getting us to this destination. Below, I will summarize how they fail, paying particular attention to Hazoni's argument, as his book presents a more general and ambitious project, that of discovering or rediscovering conservatism. So uh, they fail because they can't get us there because they ignore 
what America actually always was, which was a collection of regional identities without a common one-people nation-state. It never existed. You can't have it here. It's like, look, and, and I know that people would bristle at this analogy, but it's really like having one government for Europe. I mean, look, the British and the Germans have a lot in common, for example. They're both Germans, but they have different political traditions to an extent, different cultural and regional traditions. And so putting them under one government would not really work. Same thing with the, look, the French and the Germans. They come from a common, a common kingdom, the Frankish kingdom, East and West Franklin, but they're different, all right? So, I mean, putting them together under one government wouldn't really work. You could say, well, it's language and other things there. Yes, I know that we have, we have a common language, theoretically, in the United States. Even though I would say if you go up to New England and you say, I'm going to put, I'm fixing to get a buggy and buy some sweet tea. Uh, you know, it's, people aren't going to know what you're talking about, right? So we have a language to an extent, but it's different. The classical legal tradition, communal rights without community. So he says a tremendous amount of controversy has surrounded Vermeule's common good constitutionalism. The work has been accused of endorsing totalitarianism, theoretic, uh, theocratic authoritarianism, and even fascism. But in all this controversy, the critics have neglected how much Vermeule's proposed framework resembles our current regime. And he's right about this. I mean, look, all this centralized power, it's already there. We already have totalitarianism. We already have authoritarianism. We already have fascism. It's already there in American society. We see it every single time we have government, executive government, government by decree, we, do it, we see it all the time. The way that it works, the way that our system works now is, is right in line with this. He says, Consider how Vermeule looks to the classical legal tradition, traceable to Roman law, as the basis for rejecting the distinctly American notion of dual sovereignty. According to Vermeule, sovereignty in the United States was not created by the written Constitution of 1789, but arose even before the enactment of the Constitution through the transfer of sovereignty from the British Crown according to pre-existing general principles of international law. And so he's saying, look, there is a sovereignty that came from the British crown through pre-existing general principles of international law, right? He uses some Latin phrases for this, and I'm going to ignore. Likewise, Ramiel reduces American federalism to the Catholic concept of subsidiarity, which, as Ramiel writes, grants the national government power to intervene when other competencies cannot carry out their function in an overall scheme oriented to the common good. Now, this is a common argument against federalism that you know when the states are uh, incapable of doing something, the general government has to get involved. And you hear it, right? So you hear this when people argue against, say, for example, nullification. The states were incapable of doing these things that so the general government had to. But see, the states understood what they couldn't do, and that was foreign policy and common defense. And having a free trade zone. They, they only gave certain things to the center. And these were the exact things, by the way, that the crown was supposed to do in the colonial period. Nothing really had changed. They didn't think that they were capable of doing these things on their own, that they would have a better common agent. And so that's why they gave those powers of the central authority. But they granted those powers. That didn't mean they ceded those powers. They granted those powers to the central authority. Granting a power is not the same as ceding a power. 
Vermeule's invocation of subsidiarity thus makes all of our political conflicts potential federal questions, depending on how capably or wisely a state regulates the matter. Vermeule and Hazoni accept and often celebrate the changes that have made this new America, immigration, civil rights, centralization, urbanization, etc., but they propose visions that could work only in the old America, he says. The upshot of Vermeule's common good constitutionalism is that the states become mere municipalities, the federal government becomes part and parcel of a larger system of international law, and individual rights become confined by the interests expressed by this global community. This is, coincidentally, very much like the system we currently have. (laughs) He's right. Indeed, the Supreme Court has functionally dismantled state sovereignty by inventing obstacle preemption out of the Supremacy Clause, the Dormant Commerce Clause out of Article I, and the Incorporation Doctrine out of the 14th Amendment. The Court has likewise expanded some individual rights according to evolving international norms, and at the same time confined other individual rights to standards of review in which imaginary collective interests like diversity control the inquiry. He's right about this, right? I mean, what we have essentially is what Vermeule wants. We have this unlimited we have the unlimited power of the central authority. The states have become mere municipalities. They are administrative subdivisions of the center for the most part. Now, the states don't have to be that way. They can have more power, but they've accepted this position, which is the problem. And Merriam is pointing this out. I think he, he's he's exactly right about this. We have unlimited power in the center already. What Vermeule is suggesting, we already have. He just wants the conservatives to control the system, to control the apparatus. Well, how do you do that? Well, you got to work. you got to win elections. And winning elections is, in our current polity, a very difficult thing because of emotivism. Because what you're going to get out of this is you're, you're a bad guy. You don't believe in X, Y, and Z right. These are going to be emotional responses. So how do you win with that? For a constitutional theory, I love this line, for a constitutional theory that is treated as dangerously reactionary, common good constitutionalism is strikingly submissive to the status quo, ultimately justifying, albeit with Latin terms and medieval references, what we have today. Government by federal bureaucrats who are more attentive to global standards than to American traditions. Hallelujah, right? I mean, that's what we get. This is the real problem with Vermeule. It is, right? It's, he's advocating something we already have. And thinking that's going to conserve anything. It hasn't conserved anything in American society to this point. Why would it conserve anything from this point? Well, because we win the elections and we control it. You see, here's the problem. Again, you go back to that. How are you going to, get, how are you going to win in modern American society? Hazoni's notion of community is slightly more modest than Vermeule's in that the relevant community for Hazoni is not a global order, but the nation-state. This, however, is not a serious uh, constraint when the relevant nation-state is the United States, which, with its 330 million people of diverse religions and ancestries, does not resemble a community in any meaningful sense. Oh, well, you can't say that, right? I mean, what what Merriam has pointed out is that the United States is, you can't have a nation-state because the idea of a nation has a particular definition, and America does not fit it. It never really has. So to have a nation-state, I mean, this is where John Taylor said having an America for Americans is like utopia for utopians. It doesn't exist. It can't exist. We have too many diverse interests. Governor Morris, standing at the Philadelphia Convention, saying, we've got all these diverse things. If this is going to be the hang-up right now, let's just part 
And I think at that point, people were willing to put aside those. Roger Sherman and John Rutledge essentially got together and said, look, you be Connecticut and you be South Carolina, and we're going to have a federal republic, and we're going to have a center that does these very specific things, and then you can be Calif- or you can be Connecticut and you can be South Carolina, and we'll be happy with that. Because they recognized they were different. That was the beauty of the federal republic. It's the beauty of the federal system. It allows for what Marion points out here. 330 million people of diverse religions and ancestries. It allows for that to happen. The, the states can be reflective of the political communities in which they have. And you know what? You just have to accept that there's going to be places in America, in this federal republic, that don't necessarily fit your culture and your society. You have to be fine with that. As long as yours is okay. And if you don't like where you are, then leave. And you, you can, in your own community, try to maintain that culture right? You can do that. But the obstacle to that is the center. Because the center has said, you can't do these things anymore. As a result, Hazoni's nationalism ends up resembling Vermeule's common good constitutionalism in justifying our current order. Hazoni's depiction of the founding as a battle between the Federalists, whom he takes to be the progenitors of American conservatism, and the anti-Federalist Jeffersonian Republicans, whom he takes to be the progenitors of American progressivism, plays a critical role in his argument for national conservatism. This is not anything new. The progressives of the 1930s tended to portray Jefferson as a progressive because it fit their agenda. And, um, you know, Jefferson was a leftist. The Republicans were leftists, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it's not true. Jefferson was a leftist, but he was a committed federalist, a real federalist in believing in a federal republic. And Jefferson was also a conservative in other ways, Right in maintaining much of the status quo in Virginia in areas that he could. He, of course, was a reformer in education and other things, and he didn't like primogeniture. He didn't like some of these things. But at the same time, he also believed in the established order of Virginia. And he never looked beyond his mountains to change anything. If he could change it in Virginia, that was fine. And maybe that would influence other people eventually to change something somewhere else. That's his letter to the Danbury Baptist. But in his mind, it went that far, and that's it. So if, he, if these people are the leftists, and this plays a critical role in his argument for national conservatism, Hazoni uses this scheme to explain the contemporary failures of American conservatism. According to Hazoni, modern-day conservatives are essentially liberals because they are the heirs of Thomas Jefferson, and thus, and the universalism has, has endorsed in the second sentence, he endorsed in the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. So modern-day conservatives are essentially liberals because of their heirs of Thomas Jefferson. Now, that could be the case for the Jaffaites as well. right? I mean, these people are simply taking the proposition nation and running with it. And I, I could actually agree with that to a point. I mean, yeah, the Jaffaites, I've said this, they aren't really conservatives. They're 19th century liberals. That's what they are. But not Federalist, which is the real conservatism in America. As Calhoun said, I'm a conservative. Because I'm a conservative, I'm a states' rights man. Right? I believe in states' rights because I'm a conservative. Hazoni is not a constitutional theorist or historian, so perhaps he can be excused for simplistically treating the Declaration of Independence as a mere statement of uni- on universal reason and equality, while ignoring the Declaration's Bill of Particulars and Jefferson's reliance on the particular rights of the British Americans under English common law. 
What cannot be excused, however, is Zoni's cheap and oftentimes dishonest method of contrasting the Federalists and Anti-Federalists for the obvious purpose of appealing to modern-day prejudices so as to advance Zoni's national conservative and political agenda. This is the emotivism I was talking about. This is the emotional response, presentism, right? For example, Zoni repeatedly reminds the reader that many of the Anti-Federalists and Jeffersonians were Southerners and that many of the Federalists were Northerners, as though this geographic Information is sufficient to tell us which side of the debate we should be on now. In the same vein, Hazoni writes that the Federalists envision America as an industrial and commercial republic and therefore look forward to the decline of slavery and its eventual abolition. Hazoni contrasts these good Federalists with the bad Jeffersonian Republicans, who envisioned agrarianism as opposed to an urban and commercial future, and therefore held the, that the ideal citizen was the independent farmer who owned slaves to work his fields. What this entire discussion amounts to is a shallow Democrats of the real racist account of the founding. Exactly right. But you see, the important part of this is that it's an emotional argument. It's emotional. Oh, well, I don't want to like these people because I don't want to think that I would be anywhere in line with this. I mean, I don't agree with slavery or racism, so I don't want to, I don't want to like people that had views that were different from mine 200 years ago. I mean, it's, it's silly. It's illogical. It's irrational. But this, but it incites an emotional response. It's a moral question. So I have, I can't, I can't, I can't side with that. These people are going to be something I don't agree with, and somebody's going to call me a name because I think that Calhoun has something valuable to say about American government. It's a ridiculous, immature argument, but it's essentially what all this boils down to, because it's emotive. Hazoni does not stop at race relations. He goes on to blame the Jeffersonians for just about every significant political and social problem in modern-day America. For example, he uses the Adams-Jefferson conflict over the Alien Sedition Acts to accuse the Jeffersonians of supporting a policy of open borders. Hazoni likewise attributes our declining religiosity in the 21st century to the Confederalist vision, on the ground that Confederalism's greatest spokesmen were Thomas Jefferson and Tom Paine, two men who regarded the American Revolution as having been fought not only against British monarchy and aristocracy, but more generally against Britain's established religion. The Confederalist vision, so confederation is bad. Now look, Paine was a leftist, but Paine was essentially pushed aside. I mean, Paine was locked up and thrown in prison in France, and nobody really wanted to get him out. And I think Merriam does a nice job in the next paragraph. He says, but Thomas Paine, of course, was not a spokesman for confederalism. And he was not among the Anti-Federalists or the Jeffersonian Republicans. Nor were the Anti-Federalists opposed to religion, as illustrated poignantly in Patrick Henry's effort to restore a religious establishment in Virginia. Of course. It's a nice point. This is a cartoonish version. This is like, you know, you would get in seventh grade. That's the problem with it. It's all just cartoonish. It's stupid. In fact, one of the primary Anti-Federalist objections to the 1787 Constitution was that, quote, it was particularly dangerous to and tilted against religion because it did not protect the various state establishments from federal incursion. Yes, why do you think we had a First Amendment, right? There were states in New England that still had established churches after the First Amendment because the First Amendment was designed to thwart the central power in denying religious liberty. So you had to have it, and the states kept it. While Hazoni generously and gratuitously imputes pernicious motivations to the Jeffersonians, he conversely ex ex excises such details in protecting the Federalists from such associations. 
For example, Hazoni claims that the Federalists sought to cultivate a tolerant Protestant nationalism, noting in particular how John Jay repeatedly defended his and America's religious beliefs. But Hazoni does not disclose their religious intolerance, as when, in debating the 1777 New York State Constitution, Jay proposed a provision prohibiting Catholics from voting and owning property, and proclaiming that, quote, we must erect a wall of brass around the country for the exclusion of Catholics. Well, that's exactly right. This is true, right? There is religious intolerance in John Jay. Hazoni again excises important information when extolling the Federalist nationalist immigration policy. Hazoni contends that in response to the policy of open borders endorsed by the Jeffersonians, the Federalists favor restrictive immigration policies for a long and a long process of naturalization. Hazoni praises the founding area naturalization laws as reflecting the Federalist immigration policy, but he treats these naturalization laws as providing only durational requirements, conveniently omitting that there are also racial restrictions extending only to free white persons. This is exactly right, too. Federalists were not anti-racist, you see. He cherry-picks what he wants to say here. The Federalists were as racist as anybody else. Hazoni is similarly deceptive in his treatment of John Jay's Federalist No. 2, which, Hazoni tells us, rejects the concept of a creedal nation bound by nothing other than reason and consent of which Jefferson and Payne were the precursors. Here, Hazoni anachronistically blames Jefferson and Payne for a modern-day universal nation concept, which would rise to prominence nearly 200 years later with the neoconservative movement and its notion of American exceptionalism. Right, so, uh, but where does that come from? I mean, this, this is the issue. Where does that come from? Right? We're, was Jefferson an internationalist? No. Not at all. So then Merriam says, but Jay's Federalist II had nothing to do with our modern-day concept of America being a creedal or proposition nation, which was an alien concept in the founding area. 100% true. The essay was, instead, a response to the anti-Federalist concern that the states were too different from one another to form a unified Republican government. In response to this concern, Jay contended that the states already constituted a union because they formed one united people, and that Americans, regardless of state or origin, had five important things in common. They were, quote, a people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government, and very similar in their manners and customs. Now, none of that is true. This is a sales job by John Jay. But regardless, this is what Hazoni is saying. He's, he's relying on John Jay as a true exponent of what America was in the founding period. And Merriam says this, Hazoni not only pretends that Jay was rejecting the Jeffersonian view of a proposition nation, but Hazoni then goes on to misrepresent Jay's account of nationhood. In Hazoni's account, Jay describes a thick matrix of inherited language, values, and history, which those of foreign descent could nevertheless choose to adopt. Hazoni conveniently admits that the three Stickiest features of Jay's notion of national identity, ancestry, religion, and culture, features that of those foreign descent could not necessarily choose to adopt. Hazoni ends up implicitly adopting what he explicitly rejects. Hazoni scoffs at the neoconservatives for believing that a nation could come down to a, to a magical set of ideas, as though anyone who learns about the Declaration of Independence and George Washington is presto an American. No, becoming an American is much more complicated for Hazoni. You also have to be one of the roughly 2 billion people in the world who watch Hollywood movies and speak English too, right? This is, this is true, right? So, I mean, what they all miss, though, of course, 
Hazoni doesn't miss this. He points back to Lincoln. He talks about Lincoln as you know pushing this forward. Lincoln kind of calling on this this John Jay. So Lincoln becomes you know John Jay's vision in some ways, but he rejects the proposition nation because that's Jeffersonian. I mean, it's look. Hazoni is confused about what he's advocating here. He really is confused, and I think Jesse Marion points that out. So Merriam wraps up, Vermeule's and Hazoni's distortion of the American tradition is not merely a question of academic intrigue. By distorting our past, they also avoid the hard work of wrestling with what would be necessary to restore the American constitutional order. Their prescriptions, therefore, come off as astroturfed, abstracted from the actual conditions of contemporary American life. Right, I mean, it's, it's still ideology. They're still dealing in abstractions, not real things. These are still all abstractions that they're, that they're wrestling with here. For example, Vermeil does not touch serious legal matters like incorporation under the 14th Amendment or the Civil Rights Revolution, but he is eager to discuss antiquated matters like the constitutional status of blasphemy laws. Hazoni expresses the same attraction for irrelevant ideas, such as how there should be a national policy supporting government-led prayer in public schools, a topic he returns to throughout the book. Hazoni likewise lambastes the Supreme Court school prayer decisions as though they were the direct outgrowth of, outgrowths of Enlightenment abstractions, modeled on these social contract theories of Enlightenment rationalist philosophers. But Merriam says this obscures why school prayer remained pervasive throughout the United States for nearly 200 years and was repudiated only in post-war America. As documented in Bruce Deerenfield's The Battle Over School Prayer, the Supreme Court school prayer decisions had little to do with the Enlightenment, Thomas Jefferson, or the Declaration of Independence. The decisions instead arose from actual human conflict, more particularly the perceived need for the national government to manage the increasingly increasing diversity of American of America resulting from the 20th century waves of Catholic and Jewish immigrants. There could be no school prayer once there was no longer a Protestant America. And there will be no restoration of school prayer in this new America. There will be no restoration of school prayer in this new America, he says, period. His only solution then amounts to wishing we had another America. Therein lies the rub. Vermeule and Hazoni accept and often celebrate the changes that have made this new America, immigration, civil rights, centralization, as I quoted before, but they propose solutions that could work only in the old America. And while Vermeule and Hazoni ostentatiously shout out ideas with little to no currency in the real world, down with originalism, regulate blasphemy, reinstate school prayer, ban pornography, they discreetly offer a regime that is almost identical in operation to what we have today. In this sense, their arguments are perfectly tailored to this America, a culture in which shock value and mean tweets govern public discourse. And their provocation of the American left while submitting to its regime makes them ideal public intellectuals for their incendiary but feckless 2016 populist uprising that propelled them to public prominence. And so, again, I agree with everything Merriam said there. Right? Their solutions are what we already have just with them in charge. And what is that going to do? Nothing. It's not going to restore anything in America or go back to what made America great, which was federalism. What allowed for America to exist in harmony for a long period of time. What the real thorn in all of this was is always aggressive nationalism. And a nationalism disguised as sectionalism. All right. So, great piece, uh, great piece by Jesse Merriam. Um, I really wanted to cover this. And so... Hope you enjoyed it too. I think that Miriam does a fantastic job ripping down Vermeule and Azoni and pointing out the real problems with all of this stuff in American society. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.